Whether it's her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct has everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. Hey, Drew Scott here, and I'm Jonathan Scott, reminding you that life's better with a home policy from American Family Insurance. They can help you get just the right protection at just the right price and help you save when you bundle home and auto. Kind of like Goldilocks and the Three Bears. It'll be just right for you. We love a custom build. American Family Insurance. Insure carefully. Dream fearlessly. Get a quote and find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. Imagine you ask two people the same seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including including Courtney Cox, Rob Delaney, Liz Fair, and many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. Abraham Lincoln Radio Studio at the George Washington Broadcast Center. Jack Armstrong and Joe Getty. The Armstrong and Getty Show. Celebrity divorces. We're big on that around here in case you're a new listener. <laughs> are we? <laughs> <laughs> no, we're not. But there are two I wanted to focus on. Who's got be... the most expensive one? I know forever it was Neil Diamond. I think Phil Collins passed Love it. Love on the rocks. A new surprise. I think Phil Collins passed it a while back. The most expensive divorce in world history. Yeah, I do not know that. Wasn't Paul McCartney up there? He was very, very big at the time, yeah, with uh, his uh, one-legged wife, uh, Peggy, who he ended up hating. That Was that her name? <laughs> I don't think it was. No. That's, <laughs> that's, that, 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 let's move on. Just a, keep moving. Keep moving. Uh, so uh, Sean can look that up. The most expensive divorce ever. I'm on, uh, the, I'm on a listicle with 20 of them. I'm scrolling down to the, oh, to the number boy. one. Enjoy that. It's number six oh, will shock you. No, this was, it, this was really recent. Jeff and Mackenzie Bezos. Oh, oh, right. Of course. Right. Please. Idiots. What's number two? Uh, number two, Alec Windelson and Jocelyn Wildenson. Uh, you, you I don't know them. You got to do celebrities. French-American business and art uh, dealer. Well, boring. Boring. Yeah. Uh, Rupert Murdoch, number three. Oh, okay. there you That's go. a biggie. There you go. That's fairly recent, too. So, uh, the only thing to report on Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie's divorce is nah. it's been going on for five years now, which is twice as long as they were married. That stinks. Oh, all those on. kids they got. Just what? And they're all saying nice things about the kids and caring about each other and wanting what's best for them, blah, blah, blah. But, uh, Brad just found out that Angelina told her lawyers she is ready to testify to provide proof and authority in support of alleged domestic violence. Because of some mysterious incident on a plane that the FBI and the local cops investigated and dropped it. Uh, but anyway, so I just thought it was interesting that their divorce lasted is lasting twice as long as their marriage. On the other hand, I wish those two kids nothing but good luck. Now, on the other hand, the high-handed, lecturing, conservative-hating Robert De Niro, who I used to admire a great deal as a craftsman. Well, I still do. What's He's your favorite? What's your favorite Robert De Niro role? I don't know that I can pick one. 
I mean, Taxi Driver obviously is an astounding performance. Raging Bull is so good. Raging Bull is great. Um, in, in terms of sheer acting chops, no, I don't think you can do better than those two. It's got to be the Irish. Oh, shut right? up. When he's beating that guy down and he's acting like he's got 20-year-old hips. <laughs> Meet the parents, too. Bad grandpa. <laughs> Good stuff. All classic roles. Anyway, uh, so Robert De Niro's lawyer claims his estranged wife, Grace Hightower's taste for the finer things, is forcing the actor to work overtime. In a divorce hearing held on Friday, De Niro's attorney, whose name is Carolyn Krauss, told a Manhattan judge that her client is working at an unsustainable pace in order to support Hightower, his ex, and pay off all his back taxes. Mr. De Niro is 77 years old, and while he loves his craft, he should not be forced to work at this prodigious pace because he has to. When does that stop? When does he get the opportunity to not take every project that comes along and not work six days a week, 12-hour days, so he can keep pace with Ms. Hightower's thirst for Stella McCartney? Is that why he did Bad Grandpa's? Because he's trying to keep up with the the payments? Allegedly. Bad Grandpa is a pretty good movie, by the way. Now, listen to this. This this is the part where it gets uh, delicious. A judge recently ruled that Ms. Hightower will receive $1 million per year. The couple will sell their $20 million home. Uh, Her legal team claims that De Niro is worth $500 million, but the his uh, his uh, lawyer argued that the pandemic's put her client's finances in jeopardy, whatever that means, and that his estranged wife's spending is only making matters worse. Her attorney claimed, however, that since they filed for divorce in 2018, so this has been going on for three years, De Niro has been unfairly decreasing his payments to his estranged wife, including lowering her monthly credit card limit from $375,000. That's a month. To just 100000 as of January of this year. Just, I, I don't even dare ask my wife. How long Could they, you live on $100,000 a month on the credit cards? Oh, how long boy. were they married? Uh, they were on and off for several years. The second time they got together was a significant amount of time. But still, I just, I don't understand why she gets all that money. What's the theory behind that? Well, the theory is uh, his client, uh, her client is a, the, the woman is owed payments to maintain the lifestyle see, she that, enjoyed when the they most, were married. That's the most ridiculous thing anybody has ever come up with, the maintaining the lifestyle. Yeah. So you spent like a crazy person, which led to the arguments that led to us getting divorced. And now I've got to maintain that lifestyle for you, perhaps for the rest of your life, depending where you live. With the force of law. I yes, was against exactly. it the whole time. And it was utterly irresponsibility. Yeah. Irresponsible. To right. paraphrase Chris Rock, when I go to a restaurant, I'm accustomed to eating. When I leave, they don't still owe me a steak. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. yeah. Nice. That, that is a weird law. And, and uh, the, the, I think if feminists would do themselves a solid by, uh, by stopping those very places oh, around the world. Those, oh, you those, can't have a little lady getting a job. Well, those laws, yeah, those laws go back to when it was very common that a woman, you know, doesn't work, hasn't worked. It'd be impossible for her to go out into the workplace and maintain a lifestyle like having a home and being able to feed yourself. But to, to, to extrapolate that into the modern world, especially once you get past a certain level, is just stupid. Now, she was whining about that lifestyle she couldn't keep up. Uh, De Niro's attorney countered that Ms. Hightower has been going through money more and more quickly, claiming she spent $1.67 million in 2019 alone, including buying a diamond worth $1.2 million. Krauss went on to explain that on top of the financial demands Hightower's making. But you see, that's the, the way it works. I know this because I've been through it, unfortunately. And it's ridiculous. So 
She goes out and buys a $1.2 million diamond. You would say, what did you do that? Why did you buy? We don't need a million dollar diamond. We got these bills and these bills and bills and bills. And then when the argument blows up and you go to divorce court, they will include the $1.2 million in the lifestyle that you need to maintain. She has uh, the right to demand uh, one of these life, uh, one of these diamonds every year. How crazy is is, lifestyle? How crazy is that? It's idiotic. So, uh, let's see. So, okay. So, De Niro owes millions of dollars on his taxes, according to his lawyer. And the money from his next two film projects got to go to paying off that debt. So, he's practically destitute. Despite Bad that. Bad Grandpa 3 coming to a theater <laughs> near you. The other lawyer says, right. well, we haven't seen any cutbacks and no slowdowns in Mr. De Niro's lifestyle. He's living large when he goes to brunch on Sunday in Connecticut. He charters a helicopter. When he flies down to see his friends in Florida, it's a private jet. He's freaking Robert De Niro. De Niro's. all that money. You are not Robert De Niro. Well, and here's where. You don't where get it... to live his lifestyle. Well, here's where it gets really effed up. However. De Niro's attorney says he doesn't take helicopters to brunch. And the girl's attorney said she never bought a $1.2 million diamond. All right. So everybody's calling everybody a liar. Sure. Now, here's where we bring it home. So awful. During the hearing, Manhattan Supreme Court Justice Matthew Cooper offered both parties a reality check. There is nothing ordinary about these expenses, said the judge. For 99.9999% of the world, these are extraordinary to almost an unimaginable degree. I want to get these parties divorced. I want to get Ms. Hightower and Mr. De Niro to go their separate ways. They will still come out of this richer than almost any human being who walks this earth. Finish this, said the judge, who then fired his gavel at somebody's head. <laughs> Uh, oh, I love that. Both of them trying to pitch their sob stories to the judge. What's the name of the movie where De Niro plays a guy named Rupert Pupkin and he kidnaps Jerry Lewis? King, King of, of comedy. comedy. King of comedy. Jinx. That might be. You owe me a Coke? That might be his best role. That, Not very that, well known. No, no. That was a great movie and weird. You know what I came across by random last night? Uh, I've been on this Apocalypse Now kick for a while. I, I've now decided that's my favorite movie of all time. Mm. The new cut of it is terrible. It makes the movie worse. Watch the original. Uh, that's its own interesting thing. Sometimes when you let artists bring you the album they wanted you to hear or directors to give you the movie they wanted you to see, it's worse than what you got. Sure. Yeah, movies especially are a team effort, a big old team effort. And sometimes sometimes the main guy, the guy you worship, is just wrong. About Coppola wanted this long, boring, rambling dinner scene that led nowhere and lasted like 15 minutes. He wanted that in the original movie? Are you crazy? But apparently he did. And it's oh. usually some weird stuff. It's like, that scene was the reason he made the movie yeah. in the first... What? That was <laughs> terrible. Anyway. Dinner table. Well, there's, there's, there, is, there are different levels of art. There are art. There is art for art freaks. And they would sit through that 15-minute scene and say, it's the very mundaneness of it right. that makes it so extraordinary in contrast to the blah, blah, blah. And they would be blown away. But the rest of us would be like, God, when does this end? But my, my the, the thing I wanted to bring up about, because um, I was mentioning Robert De Niro in lead roles, mostly, uh, you know, greatest roles. Uh, uh, Duvall, Robert Duvall? Yes. Another Robert. Duvall... From Apocalypse Now, which if you've ever seen it, you remember him. It's one of the of most, course. it's one of the most famous roles in the history of motion pictures. And he's got 11 total minutes in that movie. 
Oh, really? Which you just I love shows the you smell of napalm in the morning. That's yeah. Robert Duvall. He's one of the most quotable, n- n- noted roles in history, as I've said. And it is only eleven minutes long, so it just gives it just shows you that the writing, the acting, the whatever—it's not bulk. Certainly has nothing to do with it. Right. Right. I found that I found that really interesting. There's how about, no. How small about meet parts. the parents, Michael? Meet the parents. One of my favorite Nero classic. There are no small parts. What's on it? This you're not, like one of you're your not in the circle of trust, Greg. Just small actors. Gotcha. Oh, no small parts. Sorry. Just small. It's one of a. It's a Sean aphorism, is what it no, is. Meet the parents is no, great because it no. showed he had comedy chops. Yeah. And, and he does. Of, yeah, not a lot of people can do that. And he for real does. In Bad Grandpa, he does. Um. Anyway, he's still a prick. Pardon <laughs> me. Is this on? Sorry. Is that on? Wow. Sorry. Jeez, that's. Uh, yeah. Maybe you're Bad Grandpa. <laughs> Someday I will be. Um, I'm bad uncle now. <laughs> Armstrong and Getty. Armstrong and Getty. This is the best of Armstrong and Getty. Do you know who Jimmy Lai of China is? Lai or Lay? I think it's Lai. I remember when he was featured on 60 Minutes and we talked about it back when Hong Kong had its protests going on and we all thought they had a chance. Of stopping China from taking them over, which they have. Silly, silly us. And here he was, an elderly man who had started with nothing and uh, become a gazillionaire there in Hong Kong. He's Mar- a big-time publisher. Right, and marching mm-hmm. with the protesters, you know, in uh, as a true, true patriot, knowing he's putting his life on the line. He's now mm-hmm. in prison, by the way, um, which factors into this story from the New York Post that I came across that I thought was so good. Is your iPhone worth China's tyranny? This is from a guy named Claude Prestowitz. It might be worth pointing out who that is. He served as a senior trade official and economic advisor in the Obama, Clinton, and Reagan administrations. Wow. So that crosses some uh, real ground. Man of the world. And he he wrote a book called The World Turned Upside Down, America, China, and the Struggle for Global, Global Leadership. So he's really into the story that I'm really into of the battle between the United States and China for who's going to rule the world. Is your iPhone worth China's tyranny? To understand the trouble relationship between America and communist China, it helps to tell the story of two apples. The first story began on a fishing boat where a 12-year-old boy named Jimmy Lai hid as a stowaway to reach Hong Kong from China in 1951. Beginning as a child laborer earning $8 a month, Lai became fluent in English, founded a garment empire, then established a publishing giant that includes Hong Kong's largest independent newspaper, The Apple. A staunch defender of free speech and democracy, Lai is now in jail, facing a likely life sentence on trumped-up charges. He's probably going to die in a Chinese prison because he protested with those Hong Kongers, Mm -hmm. uh, as we saw in 60 Minutes last year. The second Apple is the company that probably manufactured the smartphone, Tim Cook, the tech giant's current CEO, that you're using, and the tech giant's current CEO was born in Alabama in 1960. After earning a master's degree in business from Duke, he joined Apple as vice president for worldwide operations in 98, quickly began planning to shift the company's production operations to Guangzhou, I believe is how you pronounce it. That's Jimmy Lai's birthplace. So Apple, the Apple, the phone, moved to the birthplace of the guy who created Apple, the publishing company in Hong Kong. And fled that part of the world, it's worth noting. As a stowaway. Right. Uh, to get away from the, uh, the horrors. As a result, Apple, the phone company, shed labor unions, U.S. wages, and strict environmental and safety regulations while winning investment subsidies from China. In the bargain, Tim Cook became one of the world's richest men, wielding enormous political influence. 
Yet the American apple's entanglement with China would soon work to the detriment of the other pro-democracy apple. In fall of 2019, massive demonstrations broke out in Hong Kong in support of rule of law and against the extradition of citizens to mainland China. Apple newspaper owner Lai, Jimmy Lai, was among the demonstrators, as we just talked about. Apple, the U.S. tech giant, had an app in its store that helped dissidents by showing where they and the police were in real time so they could keep an eye on the police. They were using their Apple phones to figure out when the police were about to crack down on them. This drove the communist bosses in Beijing crazy. They called on obedient mainland news publications to call for the app's deletion from the Apple store. Cook's Apple got the message, and they did just that. Worse, Cook's firm said it had done so voluntarily. When everyone knew that, with all its production capacity located in China, Apple was scared of what would happen if it didn't comply. The world learned how much of a hostage Apple Corp. really is to the Chinese Communist Party. Wow. Cook and his Apple loudly tout liberal values and minority rights in the West, but when it comes to China's imprisonment of a million Uyghurs in concentration camps, the repression of Tibet, the killing of Hong Kong's free society, and the stifling of international probes into the origins of the uh, novel coronavirus, Cook's Apple keeps curiously mum. The silence is damning, and it mirrors the corrupt bargain the West has struck with the Chinese Communist Party, which is open about its hostility to our values. The two apples. Boy, I love that contrast. No I wish kidding. more people, especially on the left, would become aware of that. Well, I'm an Apple stockholder. Holder. I, I love my Apple products, but uh, I think they're going to end up in a position at some point where they're going to have to pick one or the other. Could be yeah. a ways down the road. Well, and who knows which one they'll pick, Jack. You know, I could cite examples through history where... American companies who were siding with the bad guys until the very last second maybe, when maybe, they had to break away. Maybe I'm overly optimistic. I feel like public pressure has grown so fast and is going to continue screaming that directions, uh, that direction that it won't be long and you cannot be the NBA saying nice things about China. You cannot be Apple and, uh, you know, uh, dance to their tune. You, I, I hope. There was a great piece on Outkick.com the other day. Star NBA players cash checks from Chinese sneaker companies proudly using slave labor. So our great moral exemplars in the NBA are cashing checks from people who have slaves right now as they lecture us on systemic racism in the United States. You know, we love China. Yeah, as we talked about last week, I have, I, I, I get confused by that. I have troubles with that. I, I don't mind holding us to higher standards than China. It's when they, it's when they, uh, it's when they cover up, um, China's transgressions that I have a problem. As you saw with the NBA, you know, LeBron James said at one point that, you know, there's a lot of uninformed people about China and that sort of thing. That, that, that I'm not cool with at all. But I don't mind holding us to a higher standard than China. Imagine you ask two people the same exact set of seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including actress and star of the mega-hit sitcom Friends, Courtney Cox. You can't go around it, so you just go through it. This is a roadblock. It's going to catch you down the road. Go through it. Deal with it. Comedian, writer, and star of the series Catastrophe, Rob Delaney. I shouldn't feel guilty about my son's death. He died of a brain tumor. It's part of what happens when your kid dies. Intellectually, you'll understand that it's not your fault, but 
you'll still feel guilty. Alt-rock icon, Liz Fair. That personal disaster wrote Guyville. So everything comes out of a dead end. And many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Cain Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Armstrong and Getty. This is the best of Armstrong and Getty. I'm just going to read chunks that Sean nicely highlighted from this article in Slate by someone named Juka Sullivanin or something, um, with two Avalinines, um, because uh, this is really well written, and it is about the secret of happiness, and, you know, wait for it, it gets to it here uh, after a bunch of different stuff. I don't know how you pronounce H-Y-G-G-E, are you familiar with that word? It's a Nordic term. I am not, term. sir. I am I'll, not. I'll call it high G. Is high G still a thing? The Danish concept of comfortable conviviality and all things cozy is supposed to capture the essence of Danish culture. And has been marketed as the secret for happy living. Uh, the Danes regularly named the happiest people in the world when they do those studies. And I got, have the pronunciation of that word, if you would like. Okay. Huga. Huga? Huga. Huga. Okay. Huga. A few years back, there was a surge of Huga-related books, articles, and household products. Journalists from around the world were touring Denmark to document various aspects of this unique lifestyle. The enthusiasm around Denmark was stimulated by the nation's reputation of being the happiest country in the world. Woohoo! Been hearing that for years. We've been doing that list. Marshall used to do that list every uh, two weeks. Who's of the happiest <laughs> country in the world? Um, if there has been a downturn in the Huga industry in recent years, it may be because of Finland which was Marshall's home country, uh, which has now surpassed Denmark in the World Happiness Report four years running. The happiest country in the world is Finland, more or less Spending next Spending time in the sauna. The Finnish spiritual equivalent of huigi is something far less convivial and more and much more difficult to pronounce. It's kalser kummer not I wouldn't even try. I knew a guy from Finland. The letters don't mean what you think they mean. <laughs> <laughs> which translates as pants drunk. 
Yes. Yes. And refers, I, I've been there. And refers to the practice of binge drinking home alone in your underpants. <laughs> I call it Thursday. <laughs> we don't have as complicated a name for it. It's called a Thursday. If you're binge drinking at home alone in sweats, you are just pretentious. I almost want to figure. Drunk. I almost want to figure out how to say this word so I can throw it around for the rest of my life. It's the Finnish word for pants drunk. <laughs> you know, when you sit around binge drinking in your underpants. <laughs> anyway, it's nice that they have a word for that. Where is this going? I know you would think so, but it is going somewhere. Nobody okay. is more skeptical than the Finns about the nation, the notion that we are the world's happiest people. This is written by a Finn. This is where it gets interesting. When a cabinet member of the Finnish government was introduced at an international conference recently, the representative of the happiest country in the world... He responded, if that's true, I'd hate to see the other countries. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> the World Happiness Report, the annual study responsible for these rankings, does not pay any attention to smiles, laughter, or other outward expressions of joy. Instead, the report relies on Gallup polls, which ask respondents to imagine a ladder. Do this yourself right now. Imagine a ladder with steps numbered from 0 to 10. The top rung, 10, represents the best possible life. If you stand on the top rung, you're going to fall and break your neck, and you will no longer be happy. But let's put that aside. <laughs> There's a warning right at the top of the ladder. Yeah. Tells you. Right, right. Uh, the top rung 10 represents the best possible life for you, while the bottom rung 0 represents the worst. The survey participants are then instructed to report the number that corresponds with the rung in which they are currently standing. In other words, you're deemed happy if your actual life circumstances approximate your highest expectations. Interesting. Compared with most other countries, objective living circumstances in Finland are very good. But there is more to the story. We should not ignore expectations. Right. Consistent with their Lutheran heritage, the Nordic countries are united in their embrace of curbed aspirations for the best possible life. This mentality is famously captured in the Law of Jante, a set of commandments believed to capture something essential about the Nordic disposition to personal success. You're not to think you're anything special. You're not to imagine yourself better than we are. You're not to think you are good at anything, which in America we would see as uh, a terrible thing, a terrible attitude. Child abuse. Yeah, well, it is. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's practically a mental illness. It's shaming. It's uh, it's you know it's something horrifying. The Nordic countries embrace a cultural orientation that sets realistic limits to one's expectations for a good life. In these societies, the imaginary ten-step ladder is not as high. The first rung is pretty high up. And the distance between the steps is relatively short. So, yes, I do think culture matters a great deal to understanding why countries like Finland, Denmark, Iceland, Norway, and Sweden score so high in this particular indicator of happiness. But the relevant cultural characteristic is neither huigi nor, unfortunately, uh, that, that word for pants drunk. If I had to pick a Scandinavian word to capture the correct cultural ingredient in Nordic happiness, it would probably be the Swedish and Norwegian term lagom or lagom which can be translated as just the right amount. Lagom is frequently thought to capture the essence of Swedish culture, its embracement of modesty and rejection of excess. In terms of expectations for a good life, Lagom encourages orient, uh, contentment with the life's bare necessities. If you have those, you have nothing to complain about. Ergo, you are happy. Wow, culture. That is really interesting. You know, I come from I come from the Midwest and uh, South Dakota originally, which is populated by all those people you were just mentioning. My mom is adopted, we don't, but almost certainly Scandinavian of some sort, and that is the 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 creed of like South Dakota, North Dakota, Minnesota, all those places that that are full of really happy, pleasant people, as uh, is regularly mocked. 
Yeah, it, you can't swing a loot fisk without hitting a Lutheran. It's just very low expectations for for life, and that you, you know you could again in our modern world as it comes out of New York City. That's a terrible thing to say. Now you got to shoot for the best to be a star. All these different kinds of things. But if your expectations are just you know I'm going to have a house, I'm going to feed myself, and the family's going to hang out, we're going to do little league and barbecues. That's what we're going to do. That's all that's going to be. You're pretty happy if that right. if that's your top rung. You're going to be on it or very close to it. One of my favorite examples that they had in that that story was the they kind of used the Americanized version of parents tell their kids when you grow up you can be president. But the the real thing, or the 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 key to the the process they are describing, when you grow up, you could be president of the homeowners association, I, right? <laughs> Setting more realistic, simple life, the beauty of the simple life goals. I, that may, that all makes so much sense to me, and it explains everybody that I used to live around in in those states I just mentioned. Why they yeah. had the, why they had the perfectly happy attitude they have. Y- yeah. Yeah, this is a thick subject. It's it is. complicated. The word content needs to be thrown around way more than the word happy. Yeah, I would agree. I would agree. Uh, I, I absolutely get what uh, the author is saying. I see the wisdom in it. I believe it. At the same time, I think mankind needs the unsatisfied, the the never satisfied, the striving, the, the fixated, the uh, the enthusiastic, you know? I just, I, I think it takes all kinds. Is it because you step outside, you're going to freeze to death in those countries? Is that what's at work here? <laughs> uh, I think you can do both. I, I think you can have, you know, as long as I got, uh, you know, I got an okay house, okay car and kids, everybody's healthy. I'm happy. I think you can have that and try to invent an airplane. I don't think they, I don't think they are separated. Well, I don't think the Elon Musks of the world are necessarily going to not exist. If we stop telling every child they could become president, I would right? agree with that I, also. I think those people, those high octane brains, will kind of rise above, anyways. And and uh, yeah, that that's my yeah, it could be. Summary. You know, it's funny. As a kid, I had the classic uh, feeling about you know you could grow up to be president and blah blah blah. Uh, now that I know much more about the presidency, it sounds like a threat. <laughs> it sounds like what you say to them to get them to eat their vegetables. I certainly would think if everybody wants to be. Uh, a YouTube star or whatever it is you want to be. And that's, you know, all the, your goals in life, as opposed to just regular run of the mill house on the end of the block, you know, with friends, with and friends family and, and, and just, yeah, right. that's just what we do. Well, I can understand why one company country would be happy and one would not be not. I don't know. Uh, I think the first thing is a recipe for misery. Your thoughts. Text line 415-295-KFTC. I thought that was really interesting, and especially learning the Finnish word for pants drunk. Mm, indeed. You can email us, mailbag at armstrongandgetty.com. Drinking alone in your underpants. Hmm. Armstrong and Getty. The best of Armstrong and Getty. It looks like the WHO report was an attempt to try to support the China narrative, Chinese narrative around this um, this. Uh, origin of the vaccine. You know, the lab leak theory doesn't seem like a plausible theory unless you aggregate the biggest collection of uh, coronaviruses and put them in a lab, a, a minimum security lab in the middle of a densely populated center and experiment on animals, which is exactly what the Wuhan Institute of Virology did. They were using these uh, viruses in a BSL-2 lab and, and we now know infecting animals. So that creates the opportunity for a lab leak. It might not be the most likely scenario in how this virus got out, but it has to remain a scenario. And I think at the end of the day, we're never going to fully discharge that possibility. What we're going to have here is a battle of competing narratives. That's Dr. Scott Lee. Uh, 
I like calling him Scott Lieb. That's yeah, pretty good. It's like Benifer. Yeah. yeah. Scott Gottlieb. I get um, your word straight, Jack. It looks like the WHO report is just, uh, you know, an attempt to cover China's hind end. Where does a guy learn to use phrases like, we'll never fully discharge that possibility? I don't I'm going to start using that. <laughs> I don't Joe, know. Joe, did you eat the last chocolate chip? We'll never fully discharge that possibility, <laughs> honey. <laughs> What's important that going forward is we... Yeah. <laughs> Um, also him saying it's not very likely unless you had, <laughs> and then he lays out all the things that the Wuhan lab is. The most interesting thing is 60 Minutes last night, we're about to play a few clips from that, from 60 Minutes last night was finally seeing this lab. I, I, I don't know why, I had, I'd never seen it before, and just seeing it there, you know, in Wuhan, in, a, in, an, in an urban area. Did it and, look like a lab or did it look like a wet market? It looks like a lab. Okay. And then, but it's not very far from the wet market, which right. I actually got, also got to see on 60 Minutes last night finally to see what that whole wet market looked like. And man, there's a lot of raw oh. this and that about. <laughs> oh, raw, yeah. wet this and that about. Oh, God. Organs and beasts and parts of beasts. <laughs> right. So gross. So 60 Minutes last night, they say they had two different people on along with Leslie Stahl, the reporter. This NSCC official from the Clinton administration, and he's in the WHO advisory committee. You're going to hear from him next, uh, this uh, Metzer dude. And then they had another guy who was standing up for the Chinese and the idea that it naturally occurred in the, in, in, across the market, everything, in, the, in the lab and everything like that. And he's an American, but uh, I don't know. He just, you know, maybe maybe I'm projecting my already conclusions onto the guy. But he didn't seem to have a lot of answers for why was the military involved? I, that wasn't my job to research that. My job was to research, you know, just stuff like that. I just felt like he was covering from the Chinese. And all they got to do is put a million dollars in your bank account or, you know, give your wife a job somewhere or all kinds of different ways or threaten you. I think with these people, probably a carrot works better than stick. But sure. Oh, yeah. They're funding trillions of dollars of this, that and the other all over the globe. And the guy's getting his beak wet, perhaps. Perhaps. Getting his beak wet. Yeah. A little, like mo- little mob term for you. There. Nobody Forget wants a dry it. beak. No. No Come way to go through life. Beak. Uh, let's hear those first couple from Jamie Metzl, who used to be in the Clinton administration. I wouldn't really call what's happened now an investigation. It's essentially a highly chaperoned, highly curated study tour. Study tour. Study tour. Everybody around the world is imagining this is some kind of full investigation. It's not. This group of experts only saw what the Chinese government wanted them to see. We would have to ask the question, well, why in Wuhan? To quote Humphrey Bogart, of all the gin joints in all the towns in all the world, why Wuhan? What Wuhan does have is China's Level 4 Virology Institute, with probably the world's largest collection of bat viruses, including bat coronaviruses. I thought that was a great point, of all the gin joints in all the world. Why'd she have to walk into this? Of all the places in all the world, the worst virus that has been unleashed on the planet in a century just happened to come right like a block away from where they're studying those things. Come on now, what am I, a child? I know, I know. You can't prove a negative, but you have to disprove that positive to me. 
I mean, you've got to come up with an alternate explanation. I've been reading a lot about this, and I've held back because I don't want to bore people to death. But there there was a gal, a Chinese scientist, who was the world's leading bat virus expert. And she would find stuff in southern China, and then they would work on it and refine it and all in Wuhan. And then uh, she moved on to other things. And when the thing broke out, and this is the world's leading expert in Chinese bat viruses, she said, It broke out in Wuhan. That's impossible. It would be South China where those bats are. And that's why they invented that ridiculous wet market story. But if anybody who knows anything about bat viruses understands that that is the world's just glowing nuclear center of that sort of thing being in danger of leaking out. And I know one of the reasons you push back on this is you're a big fan of raw wet bat as a delicacy and everybody blaming that for this is, uh, you know, it's hurtful to you. Well, and it's made it so much more expensive to get some nice, <laughs> tender, wet bat. Right. Yeah. Now they boil it. I mean, they work so hard to make sure it's got no virus. All the flavor's gone. <laughs> right. Oh, right. We, we had a house full of family over the weekend. I made steaks. We had potatoes. Everybody said, Joe, where's the wet bat? I got a little uh, little gag there when I was trying to make that uh, little humorous comment. All the flavor's gone. This is sick enough. Mm, a little too batty. Uh. Um, let's just hear a little more from this, uh, this, this dude on how, and again, so if China has nothing to hide, why would you act like this? China had ruled out a lab accident long before the WHO team arrived at the airport in Wuhan on January 14th and were greeted by people in full PPE gear. The team included some of the world's leading experts on how viruses are transmitted from animals to humans. But even though there have been accidental lab leaks of viruses in China in the past that have infected people and killed at least one, no one on the team was trained in how to formally investigate a lab leak. They were there for a four-week mission but two of those weeks were spent holed up at this hotel in quarantine. Once out, they had some tense exchanges with their counterparts, a team of Chinese experts, over their refusal to provide raw data. Which they never did, and still have not. So the WHO team gets there, and uh, delay, delay, delay before they even get there, and then when they get there, they put them in a hotel for two weeks, just pacing around, watching TV. As they get everything cleaned up, the Chinese get everything cleaned up. and Quarantining them. It's allegedly the world's greatest disease experts. You can probably go ahead and give them a hazmat suit and turn them loose. No, we got to quarantine you, sure. So why would you act like this? Yeah, well, because you're guilty. You're clearly guilty. One of the more interesting aspects of this that I just found out was when, and I, I just closed the tab a little while ago, but... um. The guy who initially leaked the story about those State Department cables that came out in 2018, I think it was, the State Department folks were there at the lab, and they were uh, emailing back to the mothership in D.C., hey, we're at this lab, and they don't have level four security protocols uh, in, in, F- in effect. In fact, some of the head guys at the lab are telling us, we can't find enough techs who know that stuff. We have problems with, with security here, like viral security. And our people were so worried, they sent a series of uh, emails back and forth. Well, the journalist who leaked that, he found out that Mike Pompeo was really mad about those leaks 
because they made China put their dukes up. Mm. They put China in a defensive mm. posture. And the idea I took from it was Pompeo wanted them unaware how much we knew. So we could really go in there and investigate, but they got their defenses up. Well, Pompeo is the last Secretary of State. The current Secretary of State is A. Blinken, and he was on a CNN show yesterday, and he said, we've got real concerns about the methodology and the process that went into the report, including the fact that the government in Beijing apparently helped to write it. So uh, making it pretty clear we're not going to buy it even when it does come out. So, No, I, th- I think a presumption of guilt is absolutely appropriate here. I mean, if somebody acts that guilty, like we were talking about before, you got a kid next to a cookie jar with chocolate all over his face, and the cookies are gone, and they refuse to let you investigate. I'll tell you what happened there. Anybody could figure that out. Close to 3 million deaths worldwide. Um, trillions and trillions and trillions and trillions of dollars spent. Tons of kids around the world that lost out on a year of learning. We don't even, we're just beginning to know what kind of damage, lifelong damage that's going to do. All because China wouldn't be open about this. They could have contained this early. None of this stuff would have happened. None of it. It's hard to even wrap your head around what a giant decision that was. This is kind of a weak start by uh, China's uh, standards for the 21st century. I mean, the 20th century, they killed 70, 80 million people, depending on, you know, which count you believe, maybe even a hundred million. Uh, so, yeah, good folks, the Chinese, and they're uh, on the march across the globe. They just signed this big agreement with Iran we can talk about later. Uh, so they're in bed together. Lovely. Armstrong and Getty. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Imagine you ask two people the same seven questions. I'm Mini Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including Courtney Cox, Rob Delaney, Liz Fair, and many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.